0: Hello and welcome to the Yeshiva University podcast. I'm Shlomo Zuckier, a lecturer here at YU, and I'm privileged to be with Professor Adam Ferziger, who is the Shimshon Rafal Hirsch Chair for Research of the Torah and Derach Eretz Movement at the Gashitsky Department of Jewish History and Contemporary Jewry at Bar Ilan. An intellectual and social historian, he received his BA, MA, and Rabbinical Ordination from Yeshiva University before moving to Israel in 1989. Good morning, Adam, and welcome. Thank you, Shlomo, and it's really a pleasure to be at Yeshiva University and to be meeting you here. Now, we're going to start with the topic of Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein and his approach towards non-observant Jews. In 2015, you published an article in the Tradition Tribute Issue to Rav Lichtenstein entitled On Fragmentary Judaism, The Jewish Other, and the Worldview of Rabbi Dr. Aaron Lichtenstein. You go through Rav Lichtenstein's writings throughout the past 50 years on how observant Jews should relate to non-observant Jews. And you make the claim that Rav Lichtenstein's core position is distinctive among major Orthodox figures, and that he demonstrates far greater appreciation and effort to acknowledge positive elements in the positions of other Jews than his predecessors. But before we get to the content of that article, why don't you share a little bit about your personal connection to Rav Lichtenstein? So I, I met Rav Lichtenstein
1: for the first time in 1982 when I was studying at Beit Midrash the Torah, BMT, and he gave a... Uh, the Tshuva uh, Drasha, it was called Alchetzah on the uh, uh, the sin that we we did before you, God, of being too strong-handed, and it was his um, understanding of the problematics of uh, Israel's dealing with the Sabra and Shatila. Uh, massacre in 1982 at the end of the uh, first Lebanon War, and I was I was very moved by a Talmid Chacham, a, a, a Torah scholar of that level, who was willing to do Cheshbon Nefesh, was willing to think in complexity about such a a, a difficult and 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 um, challenging moral uh, issue. Uh, this following year, I, I probably the scariest moment of my, of my life was being interviewed by him and. Thankfully, being accepted to Gush to Yeshiva Haratzion, where I studied for a full year, uh, and then continued my connection with them in YU. And then I, I also have a smicha ordination from REITS, from Yeshiva University, um, and I did two of my years of uh, smicha studies in the Gruss the gris Institute in Jerusalem, where Rabbi Luchansky at the time was the head. And uh, because I went to Gush, he would always call on me to read. And that was the second scary moment, or continually scary moment. But it was an opportunity to really get uh, to know him uh, in a more mature um, context. Uh, I would just say finally for now is that uh, throughout the years, uh, I maintained contact with him, although I wouldn't say that we were friends. He was um, a daunting character. He's a wonderful person, a little bit shy. But as my family knows, based on something he once said, Every Rosh Hashanah and, and 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 Pesach, I called him before the holiday, w- um, and um, then would speak to him when I thought that there was a question which was asked to me that was particularly um, relevant to his his worldview. And my son uh, Ben Sion, that you know Shlomo, also studied in the Hezder uh, program of Yeshiva Sion.
0: How's that? Yeah, I was lucky enough to to be in Yeshiva at the same time as Ben Sion. Uh So your article defines what you call Revlichtenstein's fragmentary Judaism, a term that he first used in a 1977 article on patterns of contemporary Jewish hizdahut, meaning self-identification. How would you define fragmentary Judaism? What does it mean, and how is it reflective of Rav Lichtenstein's thought? So... What I understood and um, I came
1: to this, I just will say, is when I was approached about writing something for this special journal that you were involved in, actually, as one of the editors uh, about Rav I-, I thought, what do I bring to the table? And I had r- already written a book about the development of orthodox attitudes towards non-observance in the 19th century and early 20th century. It's called exclusion and hierarchy. And and therefore, I thought to myself, gee, you know, here are two areas, one in which I've uh, written about academically and another in which I've had a personal contact and gained a lot from Rav but I've never really focused in on uh, whether he has a particular voice on these issues. And um, when I did, and I, I dedicated quite a few months to going through, as you said, his writings, I drew the conclusion that he was different than other people. And here, uh, other authorities, particularly in the 20th century, in the in the, in the, the juxtaposition or the uh, eventually the contrast that I that I drew was between Rav Lichtenstein on one side and the Chazonish, Rav Cook, and Rav Soloveitchik on the other. And the, the main distinction is that all three of the of those uh great uh authorities uh, look for ways in order to navigate the formality of Halacha, which seems to um, treat people who are regularly non-observant as outcasts to degree to the degree where the Talmud describes them as like gentiles and there are many sanctions against drinking their wine saving their lives even very things things that today we would consider quite draconian returning their lost objects that in 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 a, these things were um, perceived by these uh rabbis as very problematic to maintaining a sense of solidarity among Jewish people in, in a modern context in which uh, there's great heterogeneity and, 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 and even the majority of people are no longer allegiant to those laws. Um, the way that they navigated this problem or this challenge was to um, uh, find what we would call leniencies heterim um, based on Uh, What rabbis do in general, uh, looking at a precedent, whether it be the concept of uh, an infant taken captive, whether it be distinguishing uh, between the specific acts of a... uh, uh, transgressor and the influence of those acts upon redemptive processes in the, in the thought of Rav Cook or in Rabbi Soloveitchik's distinction between covenant of fate and covenant of faith in his, uh, Koldo di Dofec, where he suggests that there's a certain level at which all of the Jewish people are together, but then there's a Sinaitic a covenant or a pact which is uh, relegated to those people who are committed to religious observance. So in in all those cases what i found was that these uh great authorities uh took a holistic perspective on the 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 non-observant Jew and and sort of defined them and 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 said they they are sinners but we can give them certain um dispensation uh for their sins but uh, we, we sort of look at them as as, as one identity. Rav Lichtenstein, what I found was that he had a te- he has much more of a tendency to say these are individuals, groups, people who have many things in which I disagree, many failings from my perspective, from a uh, religious, uh, religio-legal perspective. On the other hand, I can also find things in which they, they are religiously or Jewishly quite positive. In fact, there are areas in which I am uh, lacking or my milieu is lacking where I can learn qu- a great deal from these other people. How do I do that? By being fragmentary, by not taking a holistic approach, by not being total, but rather trying to um, identify those parts which I find to be positive and which I can grow from. And just to offer some examples, uh, Revelation talks about the fact that many Orthodox people are, are almost rejoice triumphantly in the fact that conservatives. Synagogues are closing down. Uh, the Pew report. This is pre-Pew report, but already there was that was a discourse, and 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 said, you know, I don't think that someone should drive to the synagogue, and I have a lot of uh, problems with conservative theology, but on the other hand, conservative synagogues. Help keep people Jewish, and conservative synagogues have had a very important role in um, strengthening uh, Jewish connections. And I'm sad to see uh, these synagogues closing. I don't think that that's something I would one should rejoice about.
0: So I guess one question on on the term, as you explained it, of fragmentary Judaism, that Rev. Lichtenstein could find particular positive aspects in someone even if he disagreed with them in deep ways. I find that interesting given that his broader view, in a sense one could say, is very much holistic and viewing all of all of religion and all of life as as integrated. Meaning this is Revlachim was someone who supported not only Torah study very intensely, which he did, but also getting an advanced secular education, also his students serving in their serving in, in the Israeli army. And it viewed family life as something also to be, to be valued, not, not to be shunted aside in favor of, of allowing for Torah study. So for someone who, who viewed his own avodat Hashem, his own spiritual life, as so integrated and so holistic, isn't it interesting? And, and what would you say about this that, that then when looking towards others, with, towards others with whom he disagreed, it was precisely a fragmentary approach that Rav Lichtenstein took?
1: So I think it's a wonderful question, and it, it comes from a student, and I, I like that very much. Here here are my thoughts. I think that Ralph on on a personal level, had a very high standard for himself and for people around him, and strove very much to be holistic in the way that you're describing, yet um he bifurcated, and uh I, I think he had certain... Constructs and in certain institutions, which he he created with certain um, integrated goals. I would say integration would be the word that I I find more um, accurate in terms of some of the things that he did. Nonetheless, Rebilstein, for example, had an institution which was very focused on critical study of uh, of our. Uh, our, of chazal, of, of, of rabbinic literature from a traditional perspective, who's very um, against anything that had uh, the, the use of academic tools in the critical study of the Talmud. He himself, and this is related to this fragmentary Judaism in, in the article that I wrote, I I, I developed that thesis. Left YU at the age of 24 when he was already looked to to be the heir to Rav Solovagic and dedicated himself for four years to studying Christian humanist literature in Harvard. So uh, I personally think that he had almost, you would say, a perfectionist sort of ideal, which is what um, one who is really striving often does. But I, I don't think, I think he was quite aware of as many people who study with him, complexity. And um, the level of complexity also would tend to make one quite aware of the deficiencies and the advantages of
0: different positions. How would you respond to the critique that's at times been leveled that Rev Lichtenstein may have been tolerant in theory, but in practice, he lived in the ivory tower of the yeshiva. And his views are recorded maybe uh, in his theoretical writings, but how, if at all, would you say that he incorporated that, that broader uh, understanding of people with whom he disagreed and even his agreement at times with, with, uh, with, with various aspects of their lives, how did he incorporate that into his lived experiences? Okay, so um, just a few thoughts. Uh, one is that
1: any educator... If they, if they, if you live in the high, uh, ivory tower, if you're in, there's a there's a college in Oxford where all you do is write, and you have no contact with students whatsoever, and that's that's a privilege. Or Princeton has the center, the Advanced Study Center. So that's one level of ivory tower. Revelstine dedicated himself to teaching people, to, to to cultivating students, and 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 his students went out there. Some of them went into education and academics, and 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 became rabbis and teachers, and others went into the business world and and into uh, tech and all sorts of things in medicine. And um, I think that, that that is the role of an educator, is to teach people and to hopefully they're the ones who then bring it beyond the the framework of the Shiva. The second thing is, I think that's a problem with Robert Lichtenstein. I think in a certain sense, you have Ralph Salvetric but even more so with Robert Lichtenstein, His writing is very dense. And it's difficult, and there's a reason why most people in Israel, at least, who developed a sense of the uniqueness and um, elevated um, intellectual and religious um, perspective of Levinstein, it, it, it took place after Chaim Sabato interviewed him and put out a, a book of, of of discussion, where Chaim Sabato this great writer uh, was able to translate Rolf ideas into more palatable uh, um, themes for, for the broader public. So I, I think that the problem with the ivory tower is not that he was stuck there, and I think that he did speak a lot publicly, uh, and he did encourage students to care. Um that's how I started that article, by the way, with his great speech about Echpat echbat, and that you can't stay in the Ivory Tower. I think there is a problem with communication so, to a certain degree. I would also say there's a little bit of a difference between Revelstein's influence in American jury and Revelstein's in influence on Israeli Jewry.
0: All right. Very interesting thoughts on on the article, and maybe we'll broaden our scope for a minute and think about what Rav Lichtenstein's impact was on the Israeli scene, I guess, overall, both before and after a more popular version of his thoughts were published, and how does that compare to his influence on the American scene?
1: Okay, so maybe we'll we'll start with America. So Rav Lichtenstein came to Israel in 1971, and immediately American students who knew him from YU or had heard of him or had teachers, parents who who knew of him, um, began to study Yeshivat Haaretzion, and very quickly that developed into a a, a high-level program for foreign students in Israel to learn Torah with with his, with his raming with his students there. And um, generations already of of graduates of Yeshivat Haaretzion, of Gush, have um, come back to America, and uh, some of them have gone into the rabbinate, into education, Others have gone into academia, and many of them have gone into professional life, but certainly were influenced by that experience. I would um, note that in as much as people talk about the one-year gap year or two years in Israel as being very, very influential, for me it was it was profound in, in my gestation or my, my personal development. After that, people go to college. People get married. People go to grad school. In America, um, I, I think that... Um, for some people, that yeshiva experience remains their their focus. For others, it becomes part of a, a package in a in a less central uh, um, uh, way. And here, I would give the example not of the people who go to law school or go business school or become um, academics. Actually, people who go into chinuch and go into the rabbinate, because most of them then went to YU. And then we're under the influence of other rabbis, and I don't think, for the most part, that the type of complexity and the types of um, ability to bring in multiple worlds in his in his very speech to to, to speak about uh, um, you know Shakla Vitaria and the Gemara uh, a dis, dis, dispute in the Gemara, and then uh, two minutes later, quote from C.S. Lewis or Cardinal Newman, it was a sui generis personality. But it, but uh, beyond that, just the, the sort of that. Navigation of of intellectual worlds that Revelkzine did uh, was unique, and I think that in, in, to a certain extent, number one, most people felt that they weren't capable of doing that. But number two, I don't think they found that in Yeshiva University that was the that type of holistic experience that you were talking about. What they found was that there was a bifurcation between the Yeshiva and the university, maybe a very healthy tension, maybe a true tension, like Herman Wouk wrote in that book Inside Outside, but uh, nonetheless one which doesn't um, cultivate or continue to cultivate the types of messages that maybe he was bringing. So I would say that um, there are graduates of uh, Yeshivat HaRatzion, students of Robert in America, who very much bought into his approach. I think many people, it's part of their package. I think in Israel, you see sort of an opposite thing happening, which is that Israelis and I'm generalizing, and not all of them, but Israeli society, number one, doesn't have the tensions between conservative reform, uh, um, reconstructionist orthodox that is America historically has from a denominational perspective, and that comes from a Protestant tradition. Um, Israel, everyone uh, uh, is part of the orthodox aegis, even though most people aren't observant. There are conservative reform Movements, but they're very uh, minimal in terms of their influence on broader society. So on one hand, that creates a lot of coercion on an official level—marriage, divorce, uh, uh, burial—but at the same time, it creates a very broad spectrum of orthodoxy. Uh, That's one piece, and that's part of a book that I'm working on now. Um, And but uh, the other thing about Israel, Israelis are still kind of pioneering, and certainly the religious Zionists—they have this sort of settler mentality. They also have a mentality of like we're Creating something new, we're creating something which is original. And what I'm finding is that when I look at the students of Revelstein um, and students of institutions that he was related to, like Migdal Oz, the female yeshiva that his daughter um, SD uh, Rosenberg is the leader of, um, and, and and other institutions led by people who were under Revelstein's influence, that rather than narrowing which is what I find a lot in America they actually are expanding it in in ways which I'm not sure of would have been in fact I'm pretty sure Revelsky wouldn't have been comfortable with but uh, because uh, Israelis you know take things and they're not they're not so insecure and worried about whether that will be the slippery slope, whether that will be interpreted as making them post-denominational, part of uh, Hadar, part of uh, Chovei Torah, part of whatever it is of the denominational institutional politics, which are the reality, I'm not criticizing it, of, of, of American uh, Jewish living. I, I find that there's an interesting radical, radicalization of some of Rav Lichtenstein's ideas among some of his uh, Israeli students, people like Yuval Shurlow, Chaim Navon, uh, some of the women who have graduated from uh, Migdal Oz and um, uh, I think it's actually um it's 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 fascinating to watch those two levels and and to me it really speaks as a historian as someone who studies some of great people it speaks to a people of greatness, We're always there will be students who will take it in different ways, and there will always be this debate, which is very much the case with Rav Soloveitchik, and I think he's going to continue with Rav Lichtenstein. Who are the authentic, true students of Rav Lichtenstein? Probably the answer is that that question is just really about politics and not about uh, anyone really finding the right answer.
0: move beyond Reluchtenstein for a moment, what would you say has been the legacy of American Jews overall and maybe even specifically Yeshiva University in Israel, both both the institution of YU and its graduates? Which Americans have shaped Israeli observant culture and how?
1: My, My answers are not absolute, but these are things that I'm thinking about. There are Yeshiva University graduates, quite a few, who have um, found their place within Israeli society and are influential, but not in the areas that Israeli society usually looks at as being influential. In the politics area, v- m- very limited. I think Yehuda Ben-Meir might have spent some time in Rav sol- Salvatrix sheer. He was the deputy foreign minister. And there may be some others, but it's it's you could count it on one hand. What is going on in Israel, and it relates to my previous question, is that there's the official... Uh, religion, which is uh, the Chief Rabbinate. There's also the um, burgeoning Haredi orthodoxy, which, from a statistical perspective, is growing in leaps and bounds. But there is also a, a, a culture of more liberal, open-minded orthodoxy, which is um, which is developing in Israel, not only in the elite institutions, but within um, the, I would say, the um, Uh, middle class, you call it bourgeois, whatever you want to call it, in places like, uh, I live in Krasaba, more Ranana, Modi'in, parts of Beit Shemesh, uh, people who are very, some of them very committed religiously, but really see a view of of contemporary society and of their Zionism and their relationship to society that is beyond the the classical religious Zionist perspective. And and, and some of the key people in creating institutions which allowed for there to be uh, an intellectual, spiritual foundation to these things are Americans. One of them is Rav Lichtenstein, and Rav Lichtenstein is not just Rav Lichtenstein. Rav Lichtenstein and Yeshiva Haaretzion, I mentioned Migdal Ozoretti. He's graduate, Yuval Shurlo has the, the yeshiva, uh, of, of, of Amit and Ranana has a lot of students. Um, Yaakov Nagen is a very important Ram, uh, uh Rosh Shiva in Otni El. Also, um, Rav, Reema Kohen, the Rosh Shiva there is, is a graduate of Yeshiva Rahar Tzion, um, Yerucham, uh, uh Gilboa. There's a broad range of, of yeshivas today which are putting out students year after year after year that there some of them are Americans, but many of them are Israelis
0: who are influenced by that network. Um, and when you say influence, you mean in terms of their approach to learning the Brisker Derech, in terms of their approach to to uh, spirit, religious life overall. So I don't want to digress, but I will say definitely on the spiritual
1: life approach. But they've made it their own. They've taken ownership and taken it another place, as I mentioned before, in terms of that Israeli pioneering sort of spirit. Uh, in terms of the Brisker Derech. I really recommend that people read an article by a, a, a colleague from McGill University, uh, Professor Lawrence Kaplan, where he analyzed um, different approaches to learning in Israeli yeshivas today, where he was able to do it by looking at videos of Shurim on the same sugya in Ketubot, in Malegilboa, in Otniel, in Yeshivat Ratzion, and I believe one more place. And um, what he found was that... Everyone takes the brisker derach into new places, even Rav Lechelstein's son, Rav Moshe Lichlstein. But most interestingly, as opposed to the classical brisk, which is very academic in the sense that in a modernist way, you, you, there's this, um, I would call, feigned objectivity. And what it leads to is people thinking that you can come to some truth in the narrative of the sugya. What these people are looking for is not the objective truth in an almost a scientific way, but meaning. And it's really interesting to see how meaning in a postmodernist sort of discourse is becoming a, a sort of a, a new
0: approach. And I really encourage people to think about that. And so, especially interesting if we're talking about students of Rev Lichtenstein, because he pushed back against those, Rev Shagar and Rev Brandis, who suggested that meaning should be the key aspect of, of learning. Right, uh, so,
1: absolutely, you're correct. Now, just keep in mind, number one, that He pushed back on it, but his institution in the end sort of gave in. So, Rev Ryanzis is the head of the Herzog College at Yeshivat HaRatzion. His own son has done, I mean, and again, that makes sense. That's what students, real students, do, is they take what they've gotten. But it is an interesting turn in that type of learning in, in, in the area of Midrashot for women, not just Migdalos, but The dominant Midrashot in in Jerusalem, uh, seminaries in the religious Zionist and uh, modern Orthodox realms, were started by Americans, by Chana Henkin, Nishmat, by Malkabina... Matan, uh, uh, Linda was started by Rabbi Chaim Bravender and Rabbi Riskin and then uh, many, uh, Tamidot Chachamot who became very central to those institutions. And these were Americans who might have been influenced, whether they would uh, say it openly or passively by certain types of feminism, probably more second phase than third phase feminism. Certainly believe that women should have, a, a, a full opportunity to learn Torah. And, um, th- those institutions didn't limit themselves to American uh, women. Actually, uh, most of their students today are Israelis. And once again, that's where you see interesting radicalization going on because Israeli women who come after two years in the army or after two years in Shirut Lumi and study in Migdalos or study in Lindemar or Nishmat, et are more independent-minded, and are less conscious of those boundaries that Americans often are when they uh, go for a year to Migdalos and then go to Maryland or Harvard or to Princeton or to Stern, um, where um, they have to integrate that into the the tensions and the politics of of the
0: American scene. So as I understand it, and I think as you mentioned earlier, some of your recent research, your current research, is on cultural interchange between America and Israel and how it's really a two-way street. It's not just America influencing Israel, but also Israel influencing America. So if I may ask, could you share with our listeners, how has Israeli Dati culture shaped American orthodoxy? I'm looking at this whole
1: issue from a a globalized perspective. And uh, the latest research in globalization sort of moves away, as Shlomo uh, alluded, from binary or or linear, one-way types of um, influences. It's not just the big American corporations that are influencing uh, the world. But rather, there is a a push in one direction, and and then it sort of becomes acculturated, and then it moves back. So if you take the case here, I think that um, some of the interesting things certainly going on in American orthodox feminism would never have taken place if they hadn't had a laboratory of Jerusalem or a laboratory of Israel. I mean, Shirah was, as was, as far as I recall, the first partnership uh, minyan. And now they're all over America. Um, another uh, framework, which I'm not... It's not clear to me how developed it is in America is a uh, uh, spiritual or kalbach type of minyanim. There's a lot of controversy now regarding whether that name should continue in a Me Too generation. But whatever it is, it, it seem, as I travel around the United States, I see that these kalbach minyanim are are, are very popular. I also walk around YU campus and I see us more than I did when I attended Yeshiva University. Um, and, so and, I would say
0: and, that you see at least possibly some of these neo-Hasidic influences
1: Possibly, I'm not sure yet, and, and, I, and I'd like to learn more about it. I am I have a guess that it really won't work in America, um, uh, because it would be d- too detaching from society. I think you can be neo-Hasidic in Israel and still be part of uh, society, I think. In America, very few people could do that. Um, but I would say that um, also Tanakh, why uh, you always had a Bible department, but that was just for a few people who wanted to you know study academic Bible, and you had to take some courses in Bible. Some were more academic, some were less. They were very, very um dis- there was a lot, a lot of supervision to make sure that they didn't touch on certain subjects. But in Israel in uh, Bible study among religious Zionists is is a big subject. Um in some yeshivas it's an it's a, even a, a a maslul, it's an option as opposed to a Talmud-oriented one. I see that Magid, for example, is translating a lot of its books from Hebrew to English because there they see there's an English-speaking readership. But I also see that um, some of the scholars in, in America are people who spent considerable time in Israel, not only in Israeli universities, but in Israeli yeshivas, and they became exposed to whether it be people like Menachem uh, Leaptag uh, or Yul Binun or um, or or other types of Tanakh approaches and um, a Bible study, which was looked at for the most part as a Christian activity, because that's what Protestants do—they learn they learn Bible. Jews learn rabbinic literature. It's fascinating to see how, because of Israel, because of connection to the land, because of connection to history, because people know Hebrew, uh, because of a variety of reasons, Tanakh has has an as ascendant role
0: within a certain uh, framework of. of orthodoxy in the world today. Fascinating. So Adam, your most recent book, Beyond Sectarianism, which was published in 2015, and it won the National Jewish Book Award that year for American Jewish Studies. So in that book, you claim that the realignment of American orthodoxy has entailed a move to the right of considerable elements within modern orthodoxy, coupled with a decline in strict sectarianism within Haredi orthodoxy, and that this this shift Modern Orthodoxy to the right, Haredi opening up in some ways, has blurred the ideological, behavioral, cultural, and social boundaries that separated the two. Can you give an example or two of this trend of Haredi Orthodoxy becoming more open and modern Orthodoxy less so? Yeah, I'll give a few examples. But
1: uh, again, the the book is about trends, and it's not about the the majority of people this way, the majority of people that way. What I'm finding is that the middle is becoming more fluid. The fluidity between uh, the, we'll call it for lack of a better word, the more right sides of modern Orthodox, which might be the mainstream, if you took a look at, that, look at it from a numbers perspective, and the more moderate Haredi elements, those mainstreams are um, kind of fluid and, and dynamic in ways which certainly weren't the case in, uh, in the mid to late uh, 20th century. So to give some examples, Zionism, Secular Studies, College, Key Roof. Those are three examples. Zionism. Zionism is, in a sense, a non-issue for most people. Most Haredi uh, uh, Americans are pro-Israel. Do they call it Zionism? Do they celebrate Yom Smaut? But I don't know how many American... Uh, modern Orthodox Jews really celebrate Yom Atsuwin either. Um, and uh, it's, it's almost a non-issue. More Haredim make Aliyah today than modern Orthodox Jews. Check with uh, Nefesh B'Nefesh. It's an interesting statistic. College? Um, you no, know, most Haredim don't um, Idealize secular education and, and, and haven't really, in, maybe on a graduate school level, they like to talk, oh, my son went to Harvard Law School. Even Kharey didn't like to do that. But on an undergraduate level, they look for programs which will allow them either to, uh, to stay in Yeshiva. Lakewood doesn't allow that, but other Baltimore does. Um, or to do so after they've left the Yeshiva in a way which won't impinge on their already having families and, and having a, uh, making a living. But, the idea of of secular education um, uh, as being a, a norm and being something that almost is expected within American Haredi Orthodoxy is is absolute today. Once upon a time, Baltimore was controversial when they created their uh, programs with Hopkins, with Townsend State. Today, uh, whether it's an official program or an unofficial program, it's it's the norm for women and um, for men and. Here, economic determinism, there's a lot of studies now about economic determinism and the developments within Haredi Orthodoxy, both in Israel and in America. Now, I wrote a lot about Kiruv or about outreach. What I'm finding is not just Chabad, but that in the uh, Lithuanian style Haredi yeshivas, and not just Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim has its own sort of bent on these things. You learn for 15, 20 years and then you go out, but it's different. But in Lakewood and in uh, tells, and then uh, Baltimore, um, and Emir, finding more and more people who are uh, dedicating themselves during their stay in yeshiva and afterwards to engaging non-observant Jews. It has an economic part to it. They create community kolels. They create Kiruv centers. Now, I want to be clear because the question is is almost obvious. Does that mean all the Haredi Jews are, are are doing Kiruv now or something? And what? so what? So there are a few people. So my answer is the following from an anthropological perspective. If you have a family, we'll say, seven kids, and you have five of them are living in Brooklyn, Muncie, and Passaic, but you have two of them, one living in Dayton, Ohio, and another living in Palo Alto, and and the, they and their wives are on the, on their websites, and they and they they make smachot, they make celebrations, and they, and they send the literature of the Super Bowl party or the Kol El golf tournament, and these are all things that exist that's taking place, and their their siblings visit, and and there's an interaction. It seeps through. It doesn't just seep through on the level of exposure. It also seeps through in terms of halakha. And, and this is something which is, I didn't, I only wrote a little bit about in that book, but it's something that I, I, I am working on uh, uh, at the moment. I even have a doctoral student who's going to hopefully write something very interesting about this, which is I think that in the Haredi world, because of Kiruv and because of this exposure, there's really become a, a hierarchy of halacha. There are almost two halachot. But there's halacha when you're in the enclave, and there's halakha when you're in the boot camp. I think Rav, um, the son of Rav Yaakov, of no, the grandson of Ryakov Kamanetsky, Roshal Kamenetsky wrote, he said, Um, Kiruv is not West Point, it's out in the battlefield. And what what works in West Point, meaning the yeshiva, and that was the metaphor, which I thought was fascinating, because West Point is about training, it's not about Torah Lishma, it's about training officers to go out into battle. When you're in Kirov, you have to think about what is the the, the minimum. And I, I I go to places Texas and California and I see Things that were great debates between modern Orthodox and Haredi, like the, the height of the machitza, and all of a sudden in these beginner services, introductory services, you see no machitza until they get to Shemona Asrei, and all sorts of things that to me indicate that the Exposure and involvement with greater American Jewry filters down into core aspects of their Judaism as well. The the flip side is that I think that American modern Orthodoxy has become very insecure and 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 really barricaded itself. And when American Orthodoxy really felt self confident is when it felt that it had a mission. When it was Soviet Jewry, Israel, um, this synthesis, whatever it was, these things gave people passion. And uh, my wish is that Yeshiva University, which is at a turning point right now, will re-engage the passion which will filter down into the wonderful, wonderful student body that it, it has the privilege to have in its midst.
0: Wow, this has been really great. We've we've talked about and Liechtenstein, American Orthodoxy, Israeli Orthodoxy, differences between modern Orthodox and Haredi American Jews. Thank you so much, Professor Fersker, for sharing your wisdom and your scholarship with us. And thank you all for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Scholars in Resonance, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you
0: get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.